0: hey everybody if you can find your seat we'll have some time to fellowship at the end of the service with tea and coffee we're gonna look at God's word together uh, we've been we've been preaching through a series in one Peter and so if you have your Bible turn to one Peter if you need a Bible we have Bibles on the back table and like we have a lot of, of those Bibles, so if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one. Uh, if, if there's only ones back there that are, you know, kind of crumpled up and you want a brand new one, come and see me, I'll give you a brand new one. But uh, like we don't buy Bibles to hang on to them, we want to give them away. So if you need one, then please take it or, or let me know. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 8 to 12 together. Let's pray, though, before we do. Uh, I know I need some help this morning, so uh, I'm going to ask uh, everyone to pray for me. But let's pray and just ask for God's help here. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we recognize that we are only here today because of your mercy and your grace and kindness that you your word says lavished upon us in Christ Jesus As He took our curse, the curse that we deserve, Father, we can be made right before You uh, through faith, declared to be good, not because we were good, but because He was good for us. And Father, all of that is grace, for certainly we, we know that we only deserved punishment because of our sin, and yet Christ bore that for us so that we might be, through faith, adopted into Your family as sons and daughters, no longer fearing death and separation, instead enjoying the joy of eternal fellowship with you, even now. Father, what an incredible thing that is. And I pray, Father, that as we, uh, as we have those moments where we stop and reflect upon it, that it would fill us with joy and encourage our hearts to persevere. So Father, we thank you. And we pray that as we look at your word, as it challenges us, we pray that we would would see that as your gift, as your spirit works in us, to make us more like Jesus, who enjoyed a relationship with you, Father, more than anyone else. The more we look like him, the more joy we might experience in you. So Father, would you help us, would you help us to understand, would you help us to apply, we pray that your Spirit would take these words and plant them in our hearts, that they might bear fruit, they might bear the fruit of repentance, that they might bear the fruit of reconciliation, that they might bear, Father, just the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, that we might look different, having seen your Word today. Would you take a few moments quietly, don't say anything out loud, but just ask God to speak to your heart this morning through His Word. And then if you would take a few moments again silently and just pray for me, pray that God would speak through me. Father, we know your word tells us that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. And in doing that, Father, that we will receive mercy and help in our time of need. And certainly, Father, we come humbly before you as those who don't have all the answers. Father, sometimes we don't even know the questions. But Father, we trust that you will give us the mercy and help that we need. And Father, I trust that you will give me the help that I need even now. And so I thank you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Will and Adam and Parag and I have been reading uh, this book, When the Church Was a Family, uh, by Joe Hellerman. It's a fantastic book. It's been really encouraging for us to, to read it and kind of work through and think through it. And I just want to begin just by reading a couple of um, paragraphs from the, from the introduction of it uh, that will give us kind of a, uh, a direction for this morning. Here's what Joe Hellerman says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Let me say that again. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community people who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. And he says this People who stay also grow, people who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Then there are those who leave to avoid working through uncomfortable or painful relations with others in the church family. Running away does provide immediate relief from the awkwardness of a hurtful relationship. It's the easy way out in the short term, and there are legitimate reasons to leave a local church. But people who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. Those are... Those are strong words, aren't they? But I got to tell you, in my experience, I've found them to be true words. Now, maybe they, maybe those words describe someone that you know. And maybe they describe you and your attitude towards the local visible church. Well, this text today in Peter is a, a summary of what Peter has been saying, of what he's been talking about uh, as Christians live together in a hostile and unbelieving society. And so he began with the general admonition in chapter 2, verse 13, or sorry, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he said in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And he transitioned from that general call into this specific section where he addressed uh, specifically citizens and how we relate to government, slaves to masters, and then wives to husbands and husbands to wives. And now Peter is going to, in verse 8, He's going to bring all of us uh, back together, back into the picture with the words that we see in verse 8, finally all of you, he says. So he's bringing everyone back in to summarize what he has been previously saying. And what he's going to do is he's going to define what is required as we relate together with one another, and then he's going to expand that out to the wider world, and it's difficult what he's going to say. It's challenging. Uh, it is spirit-fueled. It is spirit-empowered. It is, uh, it is gospel-driven. It's not something that we can do in our own effort. Uh, so in verse 8, he's specifically thinking about the, the community together. In verse 9, he's going to expand that out a little from the covenant community uh, certainly, verse 9 and following is true of how we relate to one another, but he's going to expand it out a little bit and think about how we relate outside of the church as well. So, we take our character with us out into the world that's around us in verse 9 and following. So, Peter's going to give us a vision of how we as a church can and should function as an alternate society within this hostile world in which we live as we seek to point people to the gospel. So I want us to think about what Peter says as we think about then how we live out our calling as Christ followers, both inside the church and then outside it as well. And what we see right away is the chief thing that sustains us together is deep commitment to a familial love. It's a deep commitment to a family love that sustains us. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you, and here we get some character traits, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Five character traits. That as Peter writes them, they stylistically, they he, he writes them in such a way that they point to the centerpiece of brotherly love. Brotherly love. So we have four things on the outside. We have two that are related: unity and humility, unity of mind and humility. And then we have two more: sympathy and compassion that relate to one another that stylistically point to the centerpiece. The key thing for Peter is brotherly love. Loving one another like or as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's think about unity and humility. These are attitudes that drive our sense of brotherly love. So unity of mind uh, is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we are all the same in the way that we think, in every possible way. Like-minded is not same-minded. Uh, it is that we agree and that we are united behind the apostolic gospel. We, we're united behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a, it's a, a feeling of allegiance, a feeling of commitment To what has been handed down to us. Uh, As Jude says in Jude chapter 3, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. This is what unites us. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. It means that we're united in what we believe and understand about the gospel. And incidentally, this is why as a church, we write it down Uh, You can go to our website and you can see what we believe about the gospel. You can see it. And that becomes the the, the focal point of what unites us here as a church. And then he talks about humility. Humility in the first century, when Peter writes this, humility was laughed at. Uh, It was was a sign of weakness and a sign of, of shame where honor was played such an important part in society and yet in Philippians chapter 2 we see the example of Christ the chief character trait that we see in Christ is humility because what did Christ do he humbled himself by becoming obedient taking on the form even of a servant And so status and honor were chief concerns in Peter's day. And yet humility is a call to give up any claim to status. Humility is a call even to take on a lower status for the sake of a brother or a sister. And then we see sympathy and compassion Uh, Sympathy is, is that desire to seek to understand someone else's struggles. It's an active seeking of understanding. You want to know how a person might be struggling. And then compassion leads us to walk in those struggles with them. So sympathy seeks an understanding of a struggle, uh, and then compassion leads us and compels us to walk with a person uh, in whatever struggle they're facing. Now, in Peter's culture, this had primary application within someone's local family, within their their, their kinship group. Uh, It was a a matter uh, that was centered on the the family and primarily oriented uh, to family, so the centerpiece, the, the, the focal point in Peter's mind here is brotherly love. Brotherly love. And brotherly love, again, is this command to love like brothers and sisters, to love as brothers and sisters. So what is brotherly love? Let's think about that. Brotherly love is more than just affection. It's more than just emotion. Now it is that, but it's more than mere emotion, or affection. It is a giving of oneself to others. It's active. It's a sacrificing and a giving of oneself to those to whom you are related. And what Peter is doing here, as the rest of the New Testament authors do uh, is, is he is transferring these kinship obligations that people had in the first century. He's transferring those obligations to the family of the local church in calling us to love like brothers and sisters. So in the New Testament era, and some of you come from cultures like this as as well, in the New Testament era, life was centered around the group, not around the individual. And so the highest sense of loyalty and the greatest demands that that fell on an individual were focused on their family, and primarily in the relationships between siblings. And that should should shed some light on the places in the New Testament that talk about family, that we see references to brother and sister. This is the way those authors would have been thinking about that. Not the way we might think in the West, where the individual is central, but the way they thought then, where the group is the centerpiece, the the central point. So while it's true, uh, Hellerman notes in his book, while it's true that, that we are justified, we are declared to be right through faith in Christ individually, while that is true, that isn't the whole story. And so Hellerman talks about, I don't know if he coined this phrase, but he calls it familification. So we are not just justified individually. We are converted into a new family. We, We are saved into a covenant family. Again, think about adoption. Adoption creates a new vertical relationship between a child and parents. The act of adoption establishes that new vertical relationship. But the act of adoption also establishes new relationships among siblings, doesn't it? So at the same time, it creates a new vertical relationship, but then it also creates new sibling group, a a new sibling group, as the one adopted into the family is made a brother or sister with others. So we are saved into covenant we are saved into the new covenant but we are saved into the new covenant with other new covenant people now that's true universally isn't it Uh, that, that we are related to all Christians to all Jesus followers throughout history and everywhere in the world geographically right that is certainly true universally But it gets expressed, it gets lived out in these local pockets of New Covenant churches to which we commit ourselves. This is the place, visibly, where we picture what is true of us universally. It's in these local pockets of New Covenant churches. You know, people ask me, why do you guys do Covenant Membership? And here's why we do it. Here's what I tell them. Because the covenant bond that is demanded of local church believers is so anti-cultural. The idea of giving yourself to one another, even if it costs you, is so anti-cultural that we want to remind ourselves that we have responsibilities to one another by making that covenant visible and by owning it and saying, I recognize that this is what I'm called to do, but I need help doing it. <clears throat> and so I want you to help me in that. This is why, incidentally, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the relationship between local church members as body parts, right? We are one body Many parts written to a local community. And, and the reason he does this, he, he talks about it in terms of, of body parts and, and not like components of an engine. It's not that we're components of an engine that can be flown in from here or there. It doesn't really matter. We are body parts. The connection is much more intimate and local. It's a body with an arm and a leg and a liver and a spleen, right? It's much more intimate and local. And what makes this calling unique is how, especially here in the West, how anti-cultural this is today, this whole idea. We are indoctrinated individualists, aren't we? Joe Hellerman, he says, our culture has powerfully socialized us To believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over the connections we have with others, in both our families and our churches. And so we run from the painful but redemptive relationships that God has placed us in. The tune of radical individualism has been playing in our ears at full volume for decades. We are dancing to the music with gusto, and it is costing us dearly. That's the message that we receive, isn't it, from the culture, that it's all about you. It's all about your needs. It's all about your happiness. It's all about you. But this idea that Peter talks about here demands that we live different, that we live counter to that, that we dance to different music, uh, if you will, that we live different as we see the group occupying the central place in our lives. Again, think about how our culture views commitment. If I don't like this particular commitment, that's okay. I'll just trade it in. I'll get a new commitment, right? Think about how our culture views love, that love primarily uh, it is an emotional attachment that may change, And so I I loved you yesterday, but you know what? My emotion isn't there today, so I'm going to love someone else tomorrow. But Peter and the rest of the New Testament make the argument that you cannot separate commitment to God from commitment to God's people. You cannot separate the two. Our sense of identity is bound up in the group. You can't obey these commands without other people you can't love yourself sacrificially you can't obey these commands without other people and so when God works in our lives to rescue us from the power of sin guess what he uses he uses other people to do that the primary way that God sanctifies and transforms us is in community with other people You can't grow without God's people. And see, this is where the local church takes on a key role. And so every local church becomes kind of an embassy of God's kingdom in a foreign land. And it's the place where we understand and we rally together around who we are. It's to be a place of refuge that we run to to be encouraged and strengthened. But it can't be that if it looks just like the world around it. And so listen, understand that the Holy Spirit, through this new birth that Peter talked about in chapter one, verses three to five, this new birth through faith, that through that, the the Holy Spirit generates a new family universally, universally and invisibly. But then those new covenant people come together locally in these visible pockets, they come together and they create churches. They create li- a life together as they live their lives together. Now why is this familial love central to the way that we're called to relate to one another? It's because in loving each other in this way, we one, demonstrate the gospel to one another... And two, we demonstrate the gospel to the watching world around us. So in loving sacrificially, in in giving ourselves to one another, that's the way God loves, right? In giving ourselves to one another, we show the gospel to one another. So as God loves by giving himself, so our love is incomplete if it doesn't involve giving ourselves to one another. Love that doesn't move outward is it's something, but it's not biblical love. It's not love the way the New Testament talks about love. And as we do this, as we live that way in here, we remind one another that Jesus gave himself for us. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We mirror Jesus in dying for sinners, in dying for one another, as we absorb wrongdoing and forgive one another, giving one another the benefit of the doubt, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. We we live out the values of the kingdom together within this embassy of the kingdom. And so this becomes... This place becomes the place where Jesus' prayer is answered: "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." This becomes that place, and then, God willing, it expands out into the community around us. Because as we uh, as we live out those values in here, that becomes a testimony to the world around us. It becomes a visible picture of the gospel. An alternate society that is appealing. And so, as the world sees the local church loving one another with gospel, self giving love, the gospel becomes attractive and it becomes compelling to those outside. Now, the opposite of that is also true, isn't it? If we don't look any different from the world around us, then the gospel isn't attractive, it isn't compelling. People say, I already have tension and discord. I already have violence and malice. I don't need to come in here and get it more. But the more we look like this, the more we love one another like this, the more attractive and compelling the gospel becomes. So do you see what Peter's arguing here? This family-oriented, family-centered, brotherly love. It's the centerpiece of our life together. And while certainly this identity, it impacts the church when things go wrong, which we all know they do, right? I remember uh, Kevin DeYoung, he said the church, the local church is like a sleepover with teenage girls. He said something's going to go wrong, right? And we know that, we've experienced that. But as this identity uh, impacts the church, it it impacts what we do when things go wrong. And while that is true, Peter in verse 9 begins to expand the range a little bit. And so, see, we take these character qualities with us that shape us in here. We take those outside of here as well, into the community at large. As we go and we meet a hostile world, right? Right? And the difficulties that we encounter there. And here's what he wants us to see. is that, that character that allows us to respond like Jesus to attack or to, to harm. Is grounded in. And it validates our hope. Look at verse 9. I'll just read verses 9 to 12 as he brings this psalm in to illustrate his point. He says, do not repay evil for evil. Ouch. Ouch. Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It is not easy for us to swallow our pride when someone insults us or hurts us, is it? But that's our calling. Again, verse 9, the first half. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Verse 9 is a clear call for us to seek God's best. That's what it means to bless someone. It means to to invoke God's favor on the one who has insulted us. So not only not only do we not insult in return, but we actually pray and invoke God's favor on them. Isn't that crazy? That's what Peter calls us to. That's what Jesus calls us to, right? In his words and his actions, he's called us to break the cycle. You know the cycle, right? You insulted me. Well, I'm going to insult you back and so on and so on. And it's this circle of harm. And Peter and Jesus call us to be the ones that take the initiative to break that cycle, to break it. To swallow our pride and break the cycle of harm. Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Incidentally, just think, how much more healthy would our relationships be how much more healthy would our mental health be if we would just obey the words of Jesus there? But this is what Jesus called us to, right? Now, that isn't to say that evil should go unpunished. I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the place of the civil government in, chapter thir- or in, in verse 13 to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil. And to praise those who do good. We're not talking about that that evil should run rampant. It just means that we don't take it upon ourselves to do it. There is a difference. Uh, There is a difference between civil justice and personal vengeance. And Peter is calling us away from personal vengeance, to break the cycle. And Jesus is calling us away from that. And Jesus doesn't just give lip service here, does he? These aren't just words that Jesus said. This is what Jesus did, isn't it? I mean, think about Peter's words in chapter 2, verse 20. "If If when you do good and suffer, you endure, this is a gracious thing. For to this you have been called. Does that sound familiar? For to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you. He committed no sin. Verse 22, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. He bore our sin. He absorbed our sin in his body. And by his wounds you have been healed. He didn't revile. He absorbed our sin on the cross so that through that act, the gospel and gospel reconciliation might flow through that act. And so, like that, we seek to absorb sin and wrongdoing insofar as we are able to overlook an offense if we can overlook it. And if we can't, to handle it differently than the way the world handles it. This calling to bless as Christ blessed is grounded, though, in our own hope of blessing. Look at what he says in verse 9. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, So that you may obtain a blessing. For to this you were called looks backward to the calling to bless instead of curse. In other words, you were called to bless instead of curse, to emulate Christ. That's our calling, to look like Jesus. Returning blessing for cursing is what most looks like Jesus. So we are called to look like him so that the healing power of the gospel might flow through us and that there might be peace. And this kind of Christ-like behavior is grounded in our hope. And it becomes a validation of our hope in verse nine. Our hope for lo- both uh, for life both now and later is the ground and the motivation for this kind of Christ-like love. If I don't believe that Christ has loved me securely and that that love is certain, then I will never give myself to you in humble, brotherly, or sisterly love. This is why Peter concludes, I think, this section with a quote from Psalm 34. This psalm assures us that God will rescue us, that he will judge, and it calls God's people then to trust and hope in him. By putting aside evil... And pursuing what is good. Pursuing what is righteous. And it's not passive. Notice the words of the psalm here. uh, Turn away from evil. Seek after peace. Pursue it. It marks an active pursuit for Peter of Christ in the hope of eternal life. That's what motivates us. That's what moves us and compels us. In, this. in other words, living out, this, uh, that Peter, living out what Peter calls us to uh, becomes then a, a, a mark of validation that we are right to hope in our future. As we see these things in our lives, it gives us confidence that yes, this is our certain, uh, our certain hope. Now understand, Peter's not suggesting that in responding to curses with blessing that we earn a blessing. That's not what he's saying. First of all, the word there uh, in verse 9 for obtain is the word inherit. And you don't earn an inheritance, do you? An inheritance is by definition a gift of grace. It's a gift of kindness. But more than that, Peter's suggesting that that our good works, that as we live this out, as we look like these kind of people, that as we do that, it gives evidence that the inheritance that is ours is ours to hope in. It gives evidence of what is true of us. It identifies us as God's kids because we bear a family resemblance. So Peter's saying that, that our good works, that the things that we do in looking like Christ in this way, serve as evidence of our redemption. And there's a lot of verses that talk about this, but I just want to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And by this, by our, our, our love, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, doing what God commands is an evidence that we have come to know him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, this transformed way of living tells us that our hope is not in vain. And we of all people should be the models of this. And yet we know that we fall short, don't we? We know that we fall short of this. But no matter, Peter's calling us here to give ourselves to loving like Jesus, both in here and out there, as we hope for a better tomorrow. To give ourselves to loving like Jesus, both in here and out there, as we hope for a better tomorrow. This is what we're to pursue, Christlikeness. We're to pursue that. That's the ideal, isn't it? That's the ideal, that we would all look like Jesus together. And listen, we, we know we don't always live up to the ideal, but it doesn't mean that we give up on pursuing it. It doesn't mean that we give up on praying that God would transform us and would work in us. I mean, think about anything that you uh, set yourself to do, uh, running or, or weightlifting uh, or a, a sport or studying. We pursue the ideal even as we live in the real, don't we? We, we pursue the ideal even though we look in the mirror and we go, man, I got a long way to go. We pursue the ideal. And as we do that, the gospel is magnified. So none of us are perfect, right? We're all living in the midst of God's process of transforming us. And we do that together. But that demands a commitment to loving one another as a family. And so we commit ourselves to giving ourselves for one another To not running from problems, but instead pursuing peace with one another. To encouraging one another to continue to live like Christ amidst hostility in the world. And we commit ourselves to to giving ourselves. This this way of love, this way of love, it emerges out of a commitment to community. In other words, it's, it's commitment that nurtures this love that seeks to give itself. Right, we have to commit ourselves because, sorry, we have to commit ourselves to working at loving one another because we know that we are innately unlovable. I am innately unlovable, but that's okay because you are too. We are unlovable together. And so we commit ourselves to loving one another, even though we know that God is still at work in transforming us and making us like Jesus. And we do that as we stand on the hope of a better tomorrow. Now, certainly, that means that we look forward to eternity and the life that we'll have everlasting. But even now, as we prayerfully seek peace with one another, As we prayerfully seek that God's kingdom might be reflected here in this place. This is what we long for. This is what we pray to see. And God in his grace graciously works that in us. And that is a joy and a delight. So maybe today there are offenses that you need to absorb. Or wrongdoings that you need to forgive, or forgiveness that you need to seek from another. And listen, remember that this isn't a sermon about forgiveness, but remember that forgiveness is first and foremost a vertical act. It is a surrendering to God of any right that you think you have to hold someone's sin over their head. It is first and foremost a release, a recognition that Jesus has paid the penalty for all sin, even your sin. And that you and I have no right to hold it over someone else. So forgiveness at its core is a releasing of sin to God. And that act of vertical forgiveness is the first step. It's not the only step. It is the first step to peace. Maybe you need to begin to embrace your local church as a family, moving from seeing your relationship with God primarily as an individual matter to fully giving yourself to the family that God has placed you in. And look, if it's not this one, that's fine. Find a local church family that you can give yourself to because that's where God works in you and that's where he works through you. God has called us. To a commitment to loving one another's family. In part because of what we face outside of these walls, right? We need each other. We need the encouragement that we bring. But that demands a commitment to love. And that demands that we ground ourselves in the inheritance that awaits us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is guarded in heaven for us. And if that's the ground on which we stand, it frees us. It frees us up to love one another. I just want to conclude with another sentence or two. It's a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together Or we do not grow much at all. None of this is terribly novel. We know it to be the case. So why do we so often sabotage our most intimate relationships? Seek help from others only after the damage is irreversible and continue to try to find our way through life as isolated individuals, convinced somehow that God will remain with us to lead us And bless us wherever we go. Why do we continue foolishly to operate as if our own immediate happiness is of greater value than the redemptive relationships God's placed us in? Why are we seemingly unable to stay in relationships, stay in a community, and grow in the interpersonal context that God has provided for our temporal and eternal well-being? Those are good questions. And those are questions worth wrestling with. Peter calls us, Jesus calls us to give ourselves to one another in love. So let's do that. Father, thank you for your grace that you have called us out of our sin and into a relationship with you. Not, again, not because we were good We know we weren't, but because Christ was good for us and that in placing our full trust in Him, you take His goodness and you credit it to our account so that when you look at us, you see Jesus and His goodness. And Father, we pray that as you are at work in us, that you would help us to show that kind of love to one another. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in us to strengthen us as a family of local believers that we might then see the community around us impacted for the gospel. We thank you, God, for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.